Dr. Callum Miller is a medical doctor, an academic, and a pro-life leader. And in his words, Christmas is a festival based on a crisis pregnancy situation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a podcast dedicated to giving you the tools you need to have effective and winsome conversations on abortion, to change minds, to save lives, and to transform our culture. Merry Christmas to each and every one of you. I know it's a few days before Christmas, but uh, we won't be posting uh, before Christmas and uh, on the Christmas Day, rather, and you probably won't be listening on Christmas Day, uh, unless you are, then welcome and Merry Christmas to you. Cam, Merry Christmas to you, sir. Thank you very much. Same to you. Um, it, it is a beautiful time. We have we are looking at a white Christmas here in Calgary, which is cool. But I will be in Victoria for um, Christmas actually, and I doubt they will have a white a white Christmas. But that is okay because um, we will be with family, and and that will be good. So looking forward to it. Um, I'm sure that you've probably got lots of plans for um, the Christmas season as well. But that's not what today is quite about quite yet. It's not about our Christmas seasons. It's about the OG, the the original Christmas season. Uh, we're going to be talking to Callum Miller. Tell us a little bit about Callum Miller. Yeah, yeah. Before I get into that, we wanted to have this conversation. Now, we had a similar one last year with Daniel Gilman, um, who is uh, a fantastic speaker as well, the the um, a Christian apologist. But we like having this conversation because at this time of year, during Advent Cam, we learn a lot about the Christmas story. We learn a lot about Mary. We learn a lot about um, the coming of Jesus and some of the events surrounding that. But I think, and, and we'll touch on this a little bit later as well, we don't really get into the, the, you know, the nitty gritty specific context and details that Mary was in, that Joseph was in, that Jesus was in uh, at this time. And I don't think that a lot of people, when they think of Christmas, think of, okay, like this Christmas message really can speak into the abortion conversation today. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to, sh to show um, with this conversation how the Christmas message has something fundamental, has something foundational, something massive to speak into the abortion conversation, especially the pro-life message, the pro-life movement that we are a part of. And so for that, we had on, we have on, not had on, we have on. Uh, a friend, Dr. Callum Miller. He is a medical doctor, having graduated from Oxford Medical School in 2015. He's a research associate in bioethics and philosophy of religion at the University of Oxford. His published research includes papers on the beginning of human life, the exit, the ethics of overseas medical electives, academic freedom, and the place of religion in psychiatric practice. Callum has provided politicians with advice on medical ethics issues, and he has spoken at over 20 conferences domestically and internationally. He has won prizes from the University of Oxford and the Royal College of Psychiatrists for his work in philosophy and in medical ethics. He has appeared on various media platforms, including The Telegraph, Huffington Post, The Spectator, and various BBC programs. You can learn more about him and read some of the things that he has written at www.callumsblog.com. Callum with one L, callumsblog.com, uh, coming to you and us from London, England. Here's our conversation with Dr. Callum Miller. Dr. Callum Miller, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the Pro-Life Guys podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. 
Yeah, we're excited for it as, as well. Uh, our friend and uh, and former guest on the podcast, Daniel Gilman, recommended you uh, over and over and over again. So we thought, who is this Dr. Miller? We, we better have him on. Um, so we're excited to talk about um, sort of the the relevance of the, the birth of Jesus to the pro-life story, uh, pro-life message, to pro-life activism and outreach and all of that. But before we do that, we'd love for our guests to learn a little bit more about you, sir. So, um, I mean, I had your bio, uh, I said your bio a little bit earlier, but uh, maybe you share a little bit about yourself, um, what you're passionate about, and perhaps why you're passionate about the pro-life issue in the, the field of, in the academy. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in London in the UK. Uh, I know you have a London in Canada as well, so <laughs> probably a helpful distinction. Um, I went to school here, was never really pro-life. It's not an issue in England at all. It occasionally comes up in politics, but then it's something much like in Canada where it's, should it be legal to abort baby girls just because they're girls? Um, it's those sorts of kind of marginal questions that the actual debate about abortion isn't really one. So I was never raised with a pro-life perspective. It wasn't something that I really thought about at all for most of my life. Um, and then it was at medical school when I was studying in Oxford. Um, I think that it really just gave me, firstly, the kind of background and basis for thinking about these issues from a medical perspective and from an embryological perspective, um, looking at the impact of abortion on women and so on. And also just an, an academic environment where questions could be asked and that, you know, it was possible to think about difficult questions and have challenging viewpoints that I hadn't really come across before university. Um, and so, yeah, often, especially in countries like the UK, Canada, the US, um, there's a, a significant push to stop these topics being spoken about. But I've, I really found that Oxford actually is, is very pro-academic freedom. And there really is a significant opportunity to hear viewpoints that you don't normally hear. And for me, that was very important. Uh, and so the more I read about these academic topics, you know, reading it from the academic ethics perspective, as well as seeing it through the medical perspective and the biological perspective on my course, um, it became clear to me that, of course, and no one disputes this, this is a human life. And that it began at conception. Um, and at the same time, you know, when I did my obstetrics and gynecology placement, I began to see the reality of abortion and, and so on and its impact on the child and its impact on women. Um, and so that really started changing my mind. And by the end of medical school, I was even by the end of my obstetrics placement, I was really solidly pro-life um, and never really knew exactly what to do with it. Um, and it took a couple of years later for me to do anything other than argue on Facebook. Um, but eventually, and mercifully, I managed to get out of that stage um, and do something constructive um, to try and save babies. So, um, yeah, I'm very grateful for all the opportunities I've had to do so. And it's led me on a kind of tour that I never expected to be on. Um, I never thought that this would be the main thing I would be doing with my life. Um, but it is. Um, and it's, it's something that as much hostility as I get from some places and some very powerful places, um, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's just such an amazing movement um, to be part of and such an important cause to be fighting for. So, yeah, I'm delighted to be doing that um, in a small way with you guys today. 
Bowman, and we are delighted to have you. I, I think it's so valuable to have people from various backgrounds and perspectives. And I'm curious, so I, I obviously didn't get anywhere near as far into academia as you have. I, I have a degree in biology with a focus in genetics. And, and even in that, as people in my bio courses and labs and whatnot were finding out that I was actively pro-life, there was some degree of like, surprise of but can we thought you were a scientist how could you possibly believe this this faith-based doctrine that that seems to be at loggerheads and i'm curious if ever that kind of came up whether through your schooling or since then is this something that you have found people surprised at when they realize that not only are you pro-life but you are a medical doctor an academic a christian theologian all pressed into one sort of thing. How has that kind of played out in people's acceptance and understanding of where you're at on this abortion issue? Yeah, I guess uh, to my discredit, I still have the problem of being a male, which <laughs> obviously makes um, talking about these issues in some senses challenging. Um, and I do appreciate that, of course, women have a particular perspective and there is a sense in which males are liable to downplay and misunderstand some of the difficulties that can happen in pregnancy. And, and I think we should be open about that, that, you know, we're not able to understand that um, if we're being perfectly candid. Um, but of course, at the same time, this conversation can't be limited to, um, to women because it's an issue of justice where all humans are concerned. Um, and actually, it's an issue where women need men to speak out and women ask men to speak out. And that's, that's crucially important. Um, it is, I guess, surprising to some people in the UK that there's someone who is seemingly well qualified and is very, very pro-life and has what is perceived to be a hardline perspective on it. Um, I think what they're also kind of a little bit surprised by, mainly just because there's such a deliberate and crazy narrative that you, you could only be pro-life from religious principles, that, you know, people do do get somewhat surprised by it um for me personally it's although eventually i've been able to see the clear connections between my faith and the pro-life message in terms of coming to those positions on faith and on the pro-life perspective they were completely separate uh, like nothing kind of went together nothing worked in concert originally i came to them completely at completely separate times in completely separate ways um, and what i think is is really quite a helpful consideration in this is the fact that although the bible talks about life in the womb and so on and it has the language of conception um, the bible never mentions fertilization and the church for most of its history never mentioned fertilization so in that sense it's obvious that life beginning at fertilization wasn't something that was just made up from the bible or made up from um, you know the early church or whatever it was something that came from embryological discoveries in the late 18th century. Um, and what you notice when you look into the sort of history of abortion legislation, um, I don't know exactly how it worked in Canada, but in both the US and the UK in the 19th century, the reason statutory law began to be kind of put forward prohibiting abortion was because of these discoveries in embryology. And actually, when that those laws came into place, although abortion had been generally prohibited in common law before that, it hadn't generally been seen as murder in the early stages because the church didn't know the biology in the early stages. It was still seen as wrong, but it wasn't seen as murder. 
The reason it came to be seen as something like murder, and that was put into law, was because of these developments. And it wasn't religious people, it was doctors who were at the very forefront pushing for these laws, both in the UK and in the US. Um, And so what you really see is that this was a scientific response to scientific developments. And it was doctors wanting to make clear that people who performed abortions and called themselves doctors were not. They were bringing the profession into disrepute. And so real doctors in that time were saying abortion needs to be limited and criminal abortion needs to be rooted out um, because it's completely um, anathema to the medical profession. So obviously there's much more to be said and in the rest of the podcast we'll see how there are clear links between uh, the Christian faith and the pro-life perspective. But ultimately I think it's clear and certainly in my own journey and my own thinking it's been very, very clear that you can come to the pro-life perspective regardless of your presuppositions on that. So that has surprised people. Um, My academic work is not very popular in some circles. My medical perspectives are not very popular in some circles, but that's okay. Um, The minority views have often turned out right in the end. Um, I remember reading a story, I think it was about a Hungarian physician who I think, I can't remember the exact details, but it was something like he was adamant that basic hygiene was critical to infection control. And, you know, things like washing your hands and so on, and just having basic hygienic measures was critical to stopping prevent stopping infections spreading around hospital. And he was completely ridiculed by the profession. Everyone hated him. And I think he even got kicked off. You can check the details, and I'm not pretending to be an authority on the history of this. Um, I'll find the name later. Um, but, you know, this was someone who ended up being clearly right. And, you know, we, we see that especially so during these last couple of years. And that was a perspective at the time and not particularly long ago that was completely ridiculed within the medical profession and he was completely um, ostracized because of it. And so that gives me hope really that um, this is something that is worth fighting for and that eventually common sense will prevail. I love it. Yeah, I think about what you said um, right at the beginning there about uh, the one inconvenience about yourself is that you're a man. Just imagine uh, the two of us with uh, the Pro-Life Guys podcast, how difficult it could be, and some of the comments we receive on social media. I'm just curious, before um, we get into um, really the story of Jesus and and the circumstances surrounding that, because you touched on how um, men don't often understand what it's like to be, well, don't often, we just don't understand what it's like to be pregnant. And, uh, um, and I, I, know, I know what it's like to have a wife that's pregnant, but uh, that, that, I think the disconnect there between her experience and mine is significantly different. Um, but before we get into that, you talked about uh, your work on uh, talking about abortion and pro-life issues has sort of gone past Facebook. I'm just curious, could you give us an idea of what it is that you do um, sort of beyond Facebook in, in terms of defending and protecting the preborn children? Yeah, it's a real mix of things. So um, part of it is, you know, it started off actually a lot to do with academic conferences, presenting at places just on an academic level, thinking about the ethics. And again, we're quite fortunate that the academic ethics world, at least in Western Europe, is relatively open-minded. And I've had very good platforms to be able to do that. Um, I speak to pro-life groups to kind of equip them. I speak to parliamentarians sometimes, and that would be not necessarily pro-life parliamentarians, but people who may be in the middle somewhere. 
one of the examples here is uh, I gave a talk to UK parliamentarians a couple of months ago about telemedicine abortion, where the idea is that you can, um, I think this has been introduced in Canada as well, the idea that women can, without ever seeing a medical professional, obtain abortion pills in the post and take them uh, at home. And this obviously has caused significant safeguarding risks, um, you know, the possibility of women being coerced into abortions without having the chance to see a healthcare professional and allay, you know, or explain her, her fears and concerns. Um, it's led to concerns about ectopic pregnancies and complications and babies being born in the third trimester at home and so on. Um, and those issues, of course, are of concern not just to pro-life parliamentarians, but to any parliamentarian of goodwill who, who wants women to be safe um, from both physical dangers and from abuse or human trafficking in many cases. Um, so sometimes academic audiences, sometimes parliamentary audiences, sometimes uh, university students and so on. Um, it's really a mix, but I love speaking about this topic. I love speaking about a whole load of different issues within it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really a, a wide range of things that I'm very privileged to be able to do. Wonderful. That's great. And thank you so much, sir, for doing that. So let's let's dive in. Let's talk about the context in which Jesus was born. I think maybe certainly in my circles, this is something that uh, in some ways is overlooked, just the the vulnerable situation that Mary was in. Um, so maybe could you outline, uh, maybe provide this, pr provide us a context to uh, set the stage for us uh, in which Mary received the news that she was going to carry the the Lord of glory, Jesus himself. Right. And, and you're absolutely right that this is, you know, in, in a sense, I often say that Christmas is the ultimate crisis pregnancy situation. Um, and I really think it's profound that so many times in the Bible, we find that God speaks through women in crisis pregnancy situations. And it's never an issue of should we abort? Because generally the culture throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament was clear that abortion was not something God approved of and so on. Um, and that has been pretty much the, the standard position within Judaism and Christianity for most of their history. Um, but also it's not one of, it, there's not an attitude of abandonment or you shouldn't have got yourself into this position or a woman being cast out and shamed by God because she has become pregnant in illicit circumstances, even though, of course, those women would have been subject to immense shame and ostracism from those societies. And so there are a catalogue, really, of, of um, examples of this. And actually, probably the best catalogue is the opening of Matthew's Gospel, where God, sorry, where, where Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus, and he goes through all of the mostly men who uh, led to Jesus in terms of his ancestors. But then it picks out women at a few particular places. And it's really quite remarkable when you look at the women who they were. You have two Canaanite prostitutes, Tamar and Rahab. You have a Moabite, one of Israel's fiercest and sworn enemies of the Old Testament, Ruth. You have a Hittite woman, um, Bathsheba, whom the king took by murder and adultery. Um, and then, of course, you have Jesus' own mother, Mary, um, who was, of course, Jewish, but, of course, in the situation would have been seen as the, the epitome of a woman who is anathema to society because of the way she has become pregnant. And so 
you know, this is really a remarkable story that the the lineage of ultimately the savior of the world, the true king of Israel, is a lineage that is so wrapped in shame and a, a lineage that is so um, deeply sort of contaminated in a certain worldview by these women who have been um, perhaps some of the most infamous or notorious women in Israelite history. And it's remarkable that God has chosen that story and God has chosen those women to be the grandmothers and then the mother of Jesus himself and has actually given them a place of prestige and a place of honor um, by including them in that um, in that genealogy. And so I really think that's an amazing place for the Christmas story to start, not just with Mary, but with the whole family tree of Jesus looking at these women. And of course, you know, I'm not saying these women were to blame. Of course, many of them um, had were basically used and abused by the men. And on the whole, they were the victims. And that is why God has chosen to honor them. Um, but when you look at the stories themselves, God had an incredible heart and an incredible compassion for women in crisis pregnancy situations, whether it was these women or women like Hagar, the concubine of Abraham, who became pregnant um, as a concubine of Abraham and was either sent out to the wilderness or fled out into the wilderness. One time she was pregnant, one time she had a young child. And although there was this sort of scandalous situation and she was completely abandoned by Abraham and by Sarah and by her society, God looked out for her and says, do not fear, I will make of your son a great nation. And what you really find more than anything in that passage in Genesis or the two passages in Genesis is just an incredible sense of God's compassion for women in that situation. And so I think you can only start to understand the Christmas stories and Mary's crisis pregnancy in that background and in that context of God's consistent heart for women in those vulnerable situations and his consistent provision for them, whether directly or through his people who he has chosen um, to, to be his hands and feet in the world, whether the Israelites or the church. And so, of course, Mary is in a very similar situation. Mary is a woman who is not married. She's betrothed to Joseph. So she is ostensibly a virgin, but she has become pregnant. And most of us will recognize uh, the, the response of society to someone who maintains that they're a virgin and is pregnant. It's not a very flattering or sympathetic response. But that was, of course, the situation Mary was in. And that was in a culture that was far more um, socially stigmatizing around these questions of sex and marriage and family than our modern Western cultures would be. So we can only imagine what the, the consequences might have been for her. Um, when it says that Joseph was minded to break off the engagement, that's probably one of the mildest things that would have happened to her. That's actually probably at the lenient end of what could have happened to her. And her society would have seen her in a much, much worse light, um, even than Joseph seemed to have done. Um, and Joseph was actually incredibly merciful in a sense, compared to um, what she could have been through in that sort of society. Um, this, of course, was a woman who, in that context, again, having had a child out of wedlock, 
would have been basically unmarriageable. And of course, in a, again, in a modern Western society, that's something which, you know, marriage is not seen as essential for women. And, and certainly as Christians, we would agree with that. And we would say that um, many women have a calling to singleness. And that's an incredible thing that you can serve God in that position in a unique way that married people are unable to do. Um, but of course, in that society, marriage was incredibly important to women's welfare because they had very limited work opportunities. Women did work in these times, but there were limited work opportunities, limited financial stability, limited rights when it came to owning property and so on and inheriting money. And what that meant is that marriage was really critical to a woman's well-being in this context. And so Mary would have not been marriageable after that time. She would have been socially stigmatized in itself in the initial event. And then for the rest of her life, she would have gone through significant ostracism and hardship because of the situation that she was in. And so when you think about the modern day justifications for abortion, there are, of course, a huge range of justifications. And I'm not saying they all fit into one mold. But it seems like Mary would have been one of the ideal candidates. She certainly would have been the person that advocates for abortion would have been sort of proud to display as the woman, the sort of woman that they serve. A woman in an incredibly difficult situation where being rid of the child and preserving her opportunities, preserving her well-being, preserving her social status are incredibly important and can only be done by removing that child. This is the sort of person who would be the ideal candidate for ending the life of her child through abortion. And of course, Mary responds in an absolutely incredible way. And it's, I, I think, you know, we, we don't necessarily recognize that this is um, incredibly brave and courageous. Um, of course, we sometimes recognize that, but not always. Um, we sort of see it as a given. Well, of course, if, if you become pregnant, um, by God promising you the Messiah and uh, miraculously um, bringing a baby, you know, that's not just something you say no to. But of course, it required absolutely incredible courage. Um, so the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. And it, the Bible says she was greatly troubled at the saying. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is sort of the anglicized equivalent of Joshua, which means Yahweh is my help. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so I think Mary responds with incredible, unbelievable courage in that situation, being caught pregnant while betrothed, facing the shame of her community and probably abandonment by her fiance, which, as I say, was maybe the least of her worries in some sense. And though God provided for Mary in ways that he may not provide in other situations, his promise is to work all things for the good of those who love him. 
And of course, that's a promise that we can trust as well. And so Jesus, our savior and king, himself was the son of not just one crisis pregnancy, but so many crisis pregnancies. And ultimately, Christmas is a festival based on a crisis pregnancy, but not just the story of the crisis pregnancy, because ultimately it was a story of how God used Mary's profound bravery and courage and obedience and pain to bring a savior to the whole world. So, sorry, I I know I've realized I've gone on a fair bit there, but I hope that's a helpful intro to to this topic. And reading from the Bible, I think, is a a profoundly helpful way to to do that. So that's, yeah, this is my initial thoughts. No, and I I think that's phenomenal. I love the way, the the courage, like you said, of of this wasn't a matter of like, let me go talk to my husband or my, my betrothed Joseph to make sure this is cool with him before I do this because... I want to make sure that my my ducks are all in a row. This immense courage from her saying, yes, I will, and the handmaid of the Lord be it done unto me according to thy word. Um, just such beautiful um, courage there. And and I'd love to, two things that I, I have in my mind that are just kind of mixing around from what, what you said, one of which is not only that the Lord looks after um, his people, but that he, he sees it as valuable and important for us to be aware of them. Right. I, I think about this nativity story and how easily, I mean, obviously God didn't need to bring his, his son Jesus into the world in this method, um, in, in this kind of progression, how easy it would have been to just like pop the gospel starts at um, the baptism of the Lord or something like that. And just Jesus was conceived and boom, here we are um, 30 years later and, and let's start his public ministry, the actually important part. But no, it, it, it is communicated in the way that demonstrates the absolute importance of this entire journey, the absolute value that it wasn't as though we skip through Christ's early life, but rather this is actually important for the people of the world to be aware of this. And, and so that, and I don't know if it actually ties together, but I'd love to talk as well about how this obviously wasn't easy after it wasn't that this big display of courage initially, and then God, looked after her in the way that everything was easy after that. I mean, Christ was born in the manger. Um, she and and Christ and Joseph fled to Egypt and then back and all this kind of thing. Maybe speak for a moment about first the value to not only us as Christians, but to those that we are called to preach the gospel to, that it's not just Christ on the cross, but the entire salvation story that includes this this nativity. And then maybe after that, and, and I know that we're getting ahead of myself, but just thinking of it as well, of how it's not like everything was rosy and perfect after the conception of Christ. And, and you know, this was super easy for Mary and Joseph, but rather the the challenges that they persevered through are very similar again to the challenges that mothers face through their pregnancy and after which again abortion advocates will point to of it's not just your initial finding out that you're pregnant that's difficult but your life is going to be difficult for the entirety of your life based on this and so i know those are two big questions that could go in any number of directions what are your what are your thoughts on those two kind of ideas i guess sure well i I think it's it's absolutely significant you know we often think of kind of the the start of the christmas story as being the baby jesus in a manger um at christmas day um but of course we have this concept of advent which maybe lasts for around a month just before christmas where we kind of look forward to the coming of jesus and but also in the church calendar from fairly early on was the the commemoration of the annunciation 
um, which is celebrated at the end of March, nine months before Christmas, um, where Jesus became not a baby, not a child, not an adult prophet, but he became a zygote. Um, one of the central events in history, God becoming flesh, happened not in a manger in Bethlehem, um, but actually in Mary's womb. That is the place where the incarnation happened. It happened in the womb of a woman. Um, and, in a, you know, in another way, this is quite profoundly dignifying for women in general. Because, you know, when you think about the kind of the generation or origin stories of some of the Greek gods or Roman gods, I'm not, I can't recite all of them, but they have these sort of crazy stories where, you know, I, I can't even give a specific example, but they would kind of arise out of the jaws of a shark or they would be raised by bears or something like that. So, these, you know, these absolutely hyper virile kind of <laughs> um, incredible supernatural stories um, of gods coming from other, either something crazily supernatural or, su supernatural or something kind of insanely masculine um, in some of the stories. And Christianity says that God became flesh, the one God. This is the only time God has ever done it. The only time God ever became a human and took on flesh. He did it in the womb of a woman um, in a culture where women were devalued many times and um, were not seen as fundamentally equal. And so this is something that I think in itself is really quite profoundly dignifying both to women um, and to unborn children. Um, and we'll come to that again, that, that same thing of dignifying both of them um, in a moment. Um, but I think it's really significant that unborn children are the way that God or an unborn child is the way that God chose to enter the world. It's um, not only that, but the person God chose to witness and celebrate his coming into the world. When Mary went to Elizabeth, um, it says that John the Baptist, who was still an unborn child, leapt in the womb for joy um, at the news. And so what you have is that both the saviour and one of the very, very first people to rejoice at the saviour, both of them were unborn child. And so when God took on our frail, broken and despised humanity to bring us strength, healing and honour, he brought that same honour and dignity first to unborn children. Um, there are biblical passages which kind of suggest this. Um, you know, Hebrews 2.17 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And it says that it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make atonement for the sins of his people. And so it's saying that Jesus came into the world in the same way that all of us did. He shed in flesh and blood and was made like his brothers in every respect. Um, there's, uh, there are a few really good quotes from theologians who have spoken about this. Tom Torrance, who was a famous Scottish um, Protestant theologian, said, um, that to understand the place of unborn children um, in our world, we have to look first to him who became a holy embryo in the virgin's womb and was born of her to be the saviour of the world. And he says, for in becoming a human being for us, he also became an embryo for the sake 
of all embryos. Um, he talks a lot about how embryos are brothered by Jesus, by his becoming one. Um, by becoming an embryo, he identifies with embryos and fetuses and makes them his brothers um, in a kind of radical act of identification and, and identifying with them. Um, there are obviously a, there's a huge amount that more that could be said about this, and we, we certainly can talk more about it. But I think it's so significant that God entered the world as an unborn child, and that this says something very significant about other unborn children as well. In the same way that God became human to dignify and save us and to honor us, um, so he did the same for unborn children. He became an unborn child to dignify them. Um, a former, a fam not a famous one, but a former English bishop from, I think, the 17th century put it like this with quite archaic language, but I think it's um, a really, really profound way to put it. For our conception being the root, as it were, the very ground sill of our nature, that he might go to the root and repair our nature from the very foundation, there he went. That's from Bishop Lancelot Andrews. What he's saying is that the very root of the human existence is at conception. And that is where Jesus went for us so that he might repair our nature from the very foundation. And I think that's a really just amazing phrase to think about the profundity of the incarnation um, and just what it means for Jesus to truly become human and identify with us. Um, to answer your second question, absolutely. You know, one of the, the central things that Christians have always been known for is by looking out for the orphan and the widow. Now, in a world such as ancient Israel um, or slightly later in the New Testament, people would be orphaned or widowed because the husband would die, whether in a war or from a disease or from some other cause. Um, it's much more common in our contemporary society that people are not literally widowed or orphaned in the same way, but widowed and orphaned by the abandonment of the father, um, who may well still be alive, but who has chosen not to take responsibility for his child. And by the way, I think this is one of the reasons that we can't see this as a woman's issue only, because making it a woman's issue entitles and essentially condones and legitimizes that attitude of deadbeat fathers who won't look after their child because they can dismiss it as a woman's issue and a woman's choice and thereby abdicate their responsibilities. So of course that is so common in our contemporary society. And what I think is really amazing is of course not only the frequency with which the biblical writers talk about looking out for the orphan and the widow and collecting money for them in the early churches and making sure that they were provided for, but also in the early church, the way that they practically provided for those women and children. Um, it got to the point where people would leave their children on the doors, doorsteps of churches because they knew that Christians were the ones who would look after them. So in the Greco-Roman world, infanticide was very, very common, sometimes by drowning the baby, sometimes just by leaving it out somewhere. And they would leave it either in the cold or on a hilltop to be eaten by wolves or um, die from the cold. Or sometimes they would leave it in a marketplace so that it would be picked up and taken into slavery in the future. 
Um, and what Christians did in this culture was that they would go to the marketplaces and they would look for the babies and they would rescue them and they would look after them. Um, now, there's a huge amount that's been written about this in the early few centuries. Um, Christians, of course, in the early stages had to do it on an individual basis. They would go and find it, them, find the babies themselves and look after them. And that would be their own choice. But when Constantine became a Christian, um, of course, in many ways, that led to a sort of institutionalization of Christianity, which led to many bad things. But I think sometimes our, our perspective of the institutionalization of Christianity is overly pessimistic and overly critical, because in other ways, it led to profound uh, of institutions um, being put in place, which had never existed before. And one of the laws that the uh, early Christian emperors made was that they said bishops had a duty to look after these children and make sure that these children had a place to live and that they were raised within the church and they were treated not as slaves, as they ordinarily would have been done if they were found in the marketplace, but they were treated as brothers and sisters and as family um, in the church. And so Christians have always had this profound and absolutely central ethical teaching of looking after children and women who are in distress and in need. And that has been there right from the start. And it's, it's really unfortunate that Christians have lost that reputation in some parts of the world, because from the very beginning, it's been at the very, very heart of the Christian call to justice and the Christian call to serving the community and serving the people around them. Um, so absolutely, I think we we need to recapture that as much as we can. And there are so many crisis pregnancy centers, as we know, across many countries, particularly in the US, where there are over 3000 of them. Um, but of course, there's always room for more and Christians can always be doing more to be the hands and feet of God, looking after women and their children in these situations, both before and after birth. And so I'm, I'm so grateful for the people that are already doing that um, and doing making great sacrifices to do that. Um, but we can always be praying that God would help us to do that even more and even better. That is Dr. Callum Miller, medical doctor. Um, academic and pro-life leader with that phenomenal conversation. Cam, I wonder if you have any final thoughts as we wrap this episode up. The overall impression, I, I feel like for those who are super actively involved in the pro-life movement and, and arguably even for those who aren't super actively, but, but listening to a podcast like this, like clearly you, you have a vested interest in the pro-life conversation. I, I feel like at times Christmas can be a, a time to take a break. From pro-life activism, and, and though I'm I'm not going to counter that by saying this Christmas you need to be debating people at your Christmas dinner sort of thing with your family. Um, if it comes up, then hopefully you've learned some tools for how to have good conversations and whatnot. But I, I really encourage you to, to use this as a reflection to empower you, to help you kind of recenter um, and and just reflect on on the story of Christ um, and and the Holy Family and this entire journey that is built up into Christmas and how um, how this is a journey that we want to reflect upon very very vividly and and very actively and that pro-life stuff isn't something to be forgotten during um, the Christmas time but rather something that that we can 
reflect upon to even enhance our our reflection on the life of Christ and and his nativity. And so um, I, I know it's a very general, very vague kind of reflection, but just I, I really appreciated Callum's insight into this and and as an opportunity for us to kind of rejuvenate over this this break that I'm sure many people are taking from pro-life activism doesn't mean that we we need to cease thinking about the pro-life conversation altogether, but rather actually a beautiful opportunity to further delve into a reflection on the true anchor of of the Christmas story. And and one last thing of of just that as much as Callum talked off the top about how you can come to the pro-life worldview without a foundation in Christianity, I, I think that you can come to acknowledge human life begins at fertilization, but I think that this is a beautiful time for us to think on, as Callum mentioned, the dignity of the human person. That's something that I think would be incredibly difficult to come to without the Christian faith. And so as Christians, um, I, I encourage you to um, reflect on that. And and if you're not a Christian, I, I encourage you to to contemplate that fact and, and the dignity that has been kind of illuminated and and originally bestowed upon humanity um, as as the chosen people of God sort of thing. And so lots of vague stuff in there, but I, I thought it was just a beautiful reflection from Callum. Yeah, yeah, very insightful and uh, really nothing I could add on the top of that. So thank you to each and every one of you for listening next week. The, our episode is going to be a wrap-up, a year in review uh, for what, what's been happening here at the Pro-Life Guys podcast, which if you've been following us, you are probably aware of already. Uh, but more importantly, what's been happening over at the organization we work for, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. We have teams on the streets throughout the year, throughout the country of Canada, uh, doing various projects. And so we're going to give an update on what happened this year, what happened in 2021 with the struggles, the trials, the roadblocks and everything else that we had to deal with as an organization. We want to to show you what's happened, what sort of outreach has happened, what sort of conversations have been had and what sort of impact has been made. So tune in for, into that to see what has really been happening in, in Canada. Um, we want to, to do this, to show this because we have a tremendous amount of supporters uh, who are uh, funding the work that we do and, and uh, or passionate about ending abortion, ending abortion as we are, and uh, and support the mission and really really invest in the mission financially. So we want to give a bit of an understanding and idea of what we have been doing, but also to encourage you because when we look back on the numbers, it's encouraging to see what happens when you take a step. Um, you know, one day at a time, one postcard at a time, one door at a time, one conversation at a time. So tune into that. I'm not going to give it all away. And I'm not going to keep going with that. If you want to reach out to us with any questions, concerns, comments, whatever it might be, you can reach out to us on our website, prolifeguys.com. You can uh, reach out to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And, um, and, and if you find another way, if you have my cell phone number, you can text me as well. Um, and uh, leave a comment, leave a review, subscribe, like this, and, uh, and do share this episode specifically with your friends with your family, with your church community, with those around you as we are uh, in this Advent season. And as we are um, from date of release, uh, just a few days away from uh, celebrating the birth of Jesus on December 25th. So thank you so much. God bless each and every one of you. And we hope you tune in again next time. Mm -hmm.